Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our own solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne, and as always, I'm joined by Andrew Rushby and Hannah Wakeford. And in this episode of Exocast, we're going to be covering a few of the month's most interesting papers. We've each picked a single interesting development that caught our eye, and we'll go through them in depth and summarise them for you. This month, Andrew's going to be talking about chirality and polarisation. Hannah's looking at exoplanet host abundances, whatever that means. And I'm going to be discussing work on escaping atmospheres. So, Andrew, let's start with you. Thanks, Hugh. I'm actually going to start with a slight aside, maybe a slight sad aside, to briefly mention the passing of Dr James Lovelock, who was the co-originator with Lynn Margulis and Diane Hitchcock and others of the still controversial Gaia hypothesis. So Lovelock died last week on his 103rd birthday. And with the permission of the team, I just want to take a minute to discuss his impact on astrobiology before I dive into my news for the month. So as I mentioned, James Lovelock was the co-originator of the Gaia hypothesis, which is the idea that the biosphere and the planets have kind of co-evolved over geological time through a series of feedback loops and hysteresis loops that have kept the climate within broadly habitable bounds since the emergence of life. So it has a lot of detractors and still quite controversial. And initially that came from evolutionary biologists who thought it was a little bit too deterministic, for example. But I think the Gaia hypothesis has also been very influential in planetary and climate science as the system science paradigm has been adapted and adopted a bit more widely and the web of complex interactions between the biosphere and the atmosphere and interior are becoming clear. So James Lovelock was a trained medical doctor and an independent scientist, perhaps one of the last people to whom that label could realistically be applied, in that over the course of his career he acted mainly as a consultant or a contractor to NASA and universities and and others, but was never part of a university or research centre faculty. Instead, since the 1960s, he maintained his own lab, which he called his experimental station, on his rural property in Devon, and was a prolific inventor as well, including of an electron capture detector that contributed to the study of the depletion of the ozone layer. Now, I want to be careful about perpetuating this ideal of the kind of lone, brilliant scientist in their tower, or or barn in this case, as modern research depends much more on teamwork and diverse ideas and large international collaborations than usually just one person working alone. However, he undeniably did things a little differently and remained scientifically productive and characteristically outspoken, particularly about the climate crisis and his support for nuclear power until his last days. On a personal note, I can also trace my academic roots, if you will, to James Lovelock through my PhD advisor, Andrew Watson, himself a PhD student of James, who together developed the Daisy World model, uh, an early, basic, yet surprisingly effective simulation that refuted some of the initial deterministic criticisms of the Gaia hypothesis. So Andrew Watson's philosophy and Gaian outlook developed certainly from Lovelock's shaped my conception of planetary habitability as an inherently complex emergent property influenced by and influencing the biosphere, atmosphere and interior of the planet. So he leaves behind a complex scientific legacy and at a time when mechanisms or Gaian mechanisms are being pushed to their limit, arguably by human activity, he often lamented the ongoing inactivity of policymakers and politicians to address climate change, but with mischievous good humour and a mixture of pessimism and optimism. Uh, Here's a, a quote to end from 2008 where he said, I'm an optimist. 
it's going to happen, talking about the climate crisis. So enjoy life while you can, because if you're lucky, we're going to get another 20 years before it hits the fan. Now, that was 14 years ago, so arguably we don't have, <laughs> we don't have long to go. Mm. But his position did shift from, you know, extremely pessimistic to extremely optimistic in the last few years of his life. So, uh, you know, who knows where we're actually going to end up on this. Let's, let's hope it's on the optimistic side. Were you lucky enough to meet him? I, I did. I met him once uh, at a conference at the Royal Astronomical Society. At the same time, I met Lynn Margulis, and I don't think I said anything except for just standing there. I think that was the same time I met you, because I was also at that conference, right? Yes, of course. So Hugh uh, has also worked <laughs> with Andrew Watson as well at the University of East Anglia. And yeah, we were probably at that same one. And um, yeah, so I, I was, was fortunate to meet them both. And they were yeah. both very friendly and approachable, dis- despite the fact that I didn't approach either of them really uh, as a first year graduate student but you know how it is so into my news for the month which are actually two independent but related papers this month so again apologies to my co-hosts i'll try and be brief about this so the first paper is actually called the chiral puzzle of life Mm. now chirality it's something we've talked about before on the show and i'll just give a quick reintroduction to that specifically around biological molecules. In particular, 19 of the 20 amino acids that we know about seem to have selected at some point from one of two chiral systems. Chirality is sometimes referred to as handedness, if you will, and it refers to the or describes the structural asymmetry of some molecules, like the DNA double helix or any helix, for example, that due to its its structure, its geometry, is non-superposable on its mirror image and takes either a left-handed or right-handed turn. So you could think about this kind of like the human hand, which are approximately mirror images of each other, but are not their own mirror images. Now, the reason why some biomolecules, most biomolecules, are are chiral or homochiral, they tend to have this uniformity of chirality, is not known. Could be down to information storage or like quantum effects, but there's lots of theories that abound. And this is a new one. It's from Nomi Globus and Roger Blanford, and it's published in this month's AppJ Letters. And it proposes that magnetically polarized cosmic rays, which we know have a large role in mutagenesis nowadays, were responsible for inducing this initial chiral bias. So again, I'm going to talk a little bit about polarization about the next paper, but this is basically a description of kind of the direction of the vibrations of that light. And what they're saying is that these cosmic rays induced a certain, because of how they were polarized, how the the, the plane of their vibrations were aligned, they induced a certain chirality on the molecules that they then interacted with. Some of those then went on to mutate and die, and some of them went on to mutate and live, which then induced some sort of selection bias was the argument. So they demonstrate that these cosmic rays can have this small persistent bias at the rate that they induce these kind of mutations in simple monomers. And they used a pretty complex model. This, is a, this was a heavy paper. If you're into physics and you're into maths and you're into chirality and polarization, then this is for you. But it was a tough go uh, for me, I must be honest. But they then scaled this up and said that if we can see this kind of bias being imposed on these simple monomers, that in theory the effect should be even larger when we look at helical biopolymers. And I quote, in particular, those that might have been the progenitors of RNA and DNA. So we're getting into the into the astrobiological implications here. So they suggest that if this mechanism, this cosmic ray source, is responsible for inducing this chirality, then in theory the handedness of living systems could or maybe should be universal if this is something that, that happens across the galaxy, across the universe. Now, in my opinion, there are a little light on justifying the cosmic ray angle, which is often kind of a deus ex machina thing, where if we don't know what it is, maybe it's a cosmic ray. And there was often, you know, it was often proposed to be a, a cause of climate change as well. And, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty 
possibilities into where these cosmic rays still come from. We think we have a good idea about their sources, supernova, but there are still some uncertainties about that. And they did use the modern day estimates for cosmic ray or muon flux as a proxy in the paper, which might vary widely. You know, if we're thinking about the early Earth or even planets elsewhere, I don't know if they made a good case that the cosmic ray flux was universal in that sense. So this is about as theoretical as theory papers get. They do go on to suggest some interesting lab-based experiments that you can use to test this, including using a kind of a particle accelerator to test the mutation rate when you have two different spin-polarized sources of radiation. But it, these are proposals only, and it's, a, as I said, a very heavy theoretical paper. But it did connect me to the next paper that I saw. And I, I came across both these papers on Astrobiology Web. If you're not familiar with that website, do check it out. It's a basically a really interesting, uh, useful source of astrobiology news, scrapes different sources, including the archive. And it's one of the sources I use for the news as well. And when I stumbled on the news page, I saw that these papers were basically beneath each other, independent but connected in a narrative sense. So this other paper is called Directional Aspects of Vegetation, Linear and Circular Polarization Biosignatures. And it comes from Lucas Patti and others. What they did in this paper was they looked at the polarization of the light that comes from vegetation. Now the idea is that vegetation actually induces a slight circular polarization on the light that's reflected from it. So what that means is that if you were able to see that kind of electric field that if it was moving towards you would appear to be moving circularly. It's a rather complex thing to try and visualize but it has kind of a constant magnitude and is rotating at a constant rate at the plane perpendicular to the direction of the wave. So if it was coming towards you, it would look like it was circular. Not too important to get into the, into the geometry of it all, but the idea was that they looked at these 27 different vegetation sources to see if the phase angle of the incoming light would affect the polarization signal from that vegetation, which would be very important if we were looking for life on another planet or we're looking for a signal of, uh, of a biosignature. We'd need to know if the phase angle of the incoming radiation would affect our signal that we would see. What they found was that the uh, it doesn't actually make too much of a difference. They found that the phase angle affected the magnitude of the signal, but not the shape of the spectral response, which is good because we can look for that shape. It induces a unique shape depending on the type of vegetation. And if we can account for the, the change in signal magnitude, then we can maybe account for that phase angle as well. But what I liked about these two papers was that they kind of connected the dots between between them. If you If you think about the first one, it's using highly polarized you know cosmic rays to um that induces a certain chiral bias that chirality then circularly polarizes light that we can use to look for that life from from afar so we're using polarized radiation to detect the mutagenic products of polarized radiation which i just thought made a very neat little narrative there and hopefully as i said these papers are completely separate and independent the teams could get together and maybe figure out a way to test this because they were relatively optimistic about our chances of being able to use this polarization signal as an option to detect you know biosignatures in the future so maybe get these guys together and see what they can come up with some a very interesting take on, on chirality, I think, from the literature this month. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I always thought that we had a good idea about the formation of chiral molecules because of the polarity that we measure of the stars. But if it's the chiral molecules themselves causing that circular polarization because they've been generated through a different kind of radiation, that's just an interesting kind of like, I don't know, it's not a loop Exactly, right? Life, again, complicating the picture here, influenced by and influencing 
physics, potentially, in, the, in this case. Bearing in mind with our previous discussion, if you don't remember our discussion about theory and observation, I have been thinking a lot about that recently, and I think, you know, I took, I took quite a bit from that discussion, one of which was Hannah's suggestion that maybe, in terms of us theorists, we could look for things that are more immediately testable. And I think, whilst this is a very heavy theory paper, there are definitely testable hypotheses. Mm. We've already been studying this. We already have the abilities to study it. Let's just take a slightly different angle and look at this slightly differently using the technology we have, which is why I liked it. It's testable, it's close, and it could actually produce some, a really interesting, uh, interesting result. Exocast. But enough from me. Uh, I've taken up a lot of time in the news. So I think I'm going to throw it over to Hannah for her news for this month. Well, this month I have picked a very nice short research note for the AAS. So these are less than, I think, 2,000 words or something and can only show one table or figure. My kind of paper. <laughs> it, it's, it's a very nice way of summarising work. But actually, this work is a precursor to what I expect to be a much, much larger paper coming later. And I'm looking at the chemical abundances for 25 JWST exoplanet house stars with the Keck spec. So this is work done by Alex Polanski and their team. And they are using data from the Keck high-res, high-resolution optical spectrograph to look at a very, very large number of stars. So there's going to be, like I said, a forthcoming catalogue that will report abundances for about 4,500 stars. But this is just showing 25 of those stars that host exoplanets that will be observed with JWST in the coming months. So it really is just kind of a first look at some of these materials that we really need to understand about stars before they get time to you know finish up the paper get it through the referee processes and up on archive so it's really just a everybody you need this information right now we're giving it to you here it is so i like that i like that approach so they actually use a data-driven machine learning tool and they give values data table for the effective temperature the gravity so the log g and the v sine i of 25 different exoplanet host stars and they also provide really nicely the 15 elemental abundances. Now I'm not going to just list all of the elements that they are providing in this, that would take a while, but I, I will say that so some of the key things that we're looking for, some of the key elements that we're trying to understand are silicon, iron and magnesium. And these are really important because they help us kind of break degeneracies between the planet composition and the mass that the mass and the radius alone can't do. So the Fe, the iron versus silicon ratio or the magnesium versus silicon ratio can help us understand and place kind of constraints on the size of a planet's rocky core composition compared to its mantle. So the ratio of iron to the silicon, so that's our sand and the magnesium to the silicon, is something that really tells us how solid an iron core a planet might have. And then in addition to that, you've got your what we call the volatile abundances, so the, the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen, which uh, allow us to make C to O ratios and N to O ratios, which can tell us a little bit about formation of giant gaseous planets. So there's a, a couple of specific elements which are really, really helpful for us to understand. And one thing that is used a lot in stellar physics and actually in, in everything to, to understand the ratio of metals, so heavy elements, so anything that isn't hydrogen or helium, 
is the iron to hydrogen ratio. So the amount of iron a star has relative to the amount of hydrogen it has can give you really good information about the environment in which it formed. So they're actually providing these values for these 25 uh, host stars, which allows us to kind of get a good idea of the types of stars that host these kind of planets that we're going to be looking at with JWST. So I won't go into the details of the methods that they used because that's not the important part to me, I suppose. I suppose it is to some people, but uh, there'll be much more details in the bigger paper, which is coming later. But it's a process which is developed on a version of Canon, which is a application that is used to analyze the high-res data via supervised learning algorithms. So it identifies correlations between models and observations and then comparing observations to each other to identify stellar lines. And it's these individual stellar lines that we're seeing, these absorption features from the star, which we can measure then the abundances of these materials in the atmospheres of the stars from. So one of the really nice things is that they provide the table with all of the numbers. That's what we want. We want all of those numbers. We want that table. But they also link to a website, which contains some figures that we're not able to go into this research Thank note. You. That's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. I did think That's it was cheating it. a little bit as well. Yeah. They do also, they are also required to provide a, a file with all of the information. So essentially what they're doing is they are plotting up all the information for you on their website and going hey, you can download this file attached from this table, but here you can see we've already done some of the work for you and feel free to replicate nice. it from the data table that you've just downloaded from our paper. So I, there's a hairy line there, but I'm going to use the figures from their website that they have pre-generated for us to, to kind of just look at and summarize some of the things that, that they're doing. So the first one that we want to really compare from the stars themselves is the iron to hydrogen ratio. So this is the Fe over H, you might have seen it before, generally termed as the metallicity of the star itself. And most of the stars that they're looking at are F, FGK stars. So these are stars that are would be considered like our sun. And in fact, yes, their metallicity is very much similar to the sun with very few outliers in terms of the distribution of these 25 host star. But their C to O ratio, so the, the ratio of carbon to oxygen in the atmospheres of these stars, for some of them is actually clustered much, much lower than would be expected. So the C to O ratio of the sun is about 0 0.56. So a lot of these are clustered around that 0 0.4 to 0 0.7 range. But then there is a group of four planet host stars which have very, very low C to O ratios. And this could have implications for what the planet's atmosphere might look like. So the amount of carbon to oxygen is something that we're going to be able to measure really precisely for these planetary atmospheres with JWST. That's one of the really exciting things we're looking forward to with JWST and exoplanet characterization, because it tells us something about where that planet formed in its disk. So these very, very low C2O ratio stars is interesting because will that then have an influence on the atmosphere of the planets that are around them? So that's something that we can then now compare and measure. And then the other one that's really interesting is that actually I said that they, they provide 15 different elemental abundances in stellar physics. What is normally done is you combine all of these together apart from iron so you take iron out as it's, you know, this is the champion of all of the metals that we're measuring. And you group those all together and all of those abundances together and you call them the alpha elements. So they would be known as the alpha elements in the star. 
And you can get this value if you look at the Gaia data, they provide this alpha number. It took me a while to figure out exactly what it was, but it's everything apart from iron summed up. So they also showing that the alpha elements relative to iron and the iron relative to hydrogen actually do follow a very, very simple trend and are mostly around solar with a few that have a, a unusually high amount of alpha elements compared to their iron. But there is this threshold where none of them kind of cross it. So there is this underlying physics which drives the types and the amount of elements that you would have in your protoplanetary disk. And that's something that we can use when we build up more and more and more. I'm really looking forward to seeing these plots with 4,500 stars on them. But we can add to our understanding of the fundamental physics behind these different elements and, and how they interact with each other and what that means for the types of disks that they might have generated and therefore the types of planets they might have. Because the likelihood is that not all of these 4,500 have detected planets. But if there's any kind of trends in there that we can find that might suggest that there are hidden planets there, that's a really interesting kind of look at host stars versus unknown host stars is i think the best term because most stars are gonna have we planets assume. let's be honest yeah. we can make that assumption so the unknown host stars versus the known host stars is going to be a really interesting kind of look in via these elemental abundances and while this is kind of type of thing is being done with gaia the really nice thing about this work is that they're using the keck telescopes in hawaii and the high-res spectrograph, it really gives you a lot of detail about what is in these atmospheres of the stars. So because we've got this high-res compared to some of the spectra that you're getting, even from the space-based telescopes, it means that you can get a really good constraint on the abundances of each of these, these materials. And the most important thing is the ratio between them. So I'm presenting this to everybody as a go-have-a-look it's really interesting, but it's just, as with all JWST-related things, it's just a glimpse of what is yet to come. Taster. So is the idea, Hannah, that people would be getting these in their models right now, instrument models, detecting, you know, seeing if we could, if we could detect some of the stuff it was in a planetary atmosphere down the line? Yeah, so it's really important to include a lot of these materials in your stellar models when you are using those stellar models to then generate information about what the effect you know, the UV flux of that star might have mm -hmm. on its planet or the kind of formation yeah. uh, that you would see around that planet. So this is a really useful for input into the modeling side of things. But when it comes to measuring these, specifically these 25 exoplanets that are going to be looked at with JWST, these are already scheduled. Some of them are already happening or have happened. And using these values, we can compare them to the values we're measuring in the planetary atmosphere and get a better understanding of the, the host environment, the formation environment. Because normally what we've done is compared them to solar. We've assumed, okay, well, let's just assume it's a sun-like star. Which does seem like a, a reasonable assumption given the range that was presented in the paper, right? Maybe not that far off, but... We can be better. Yeah, the, the range is really, really not that far off. But again, mm. there is this cluster which has this strangely low C2O ratio. And that is that cluster of, of there's just four of the worlds in that. There's some very, very well-known exoplanets that I will be looking at for certain. Right, so this certainly won't be the last we hear of this, you know, 
depletion or this anomaly? No, it certainly won't. And it will have an influence for our interpretation and understanding, therefore, of the planetary atmospheres. I think one of the problems with these research notes is that you have to be short, right? You can't write a long paper and you can't introduce your research in that much detail. And I think one thing that is maybe missing here is that every detection paper usually has abundances in. So if you go to all of the WASP papers, you will have abundances from the HARPS data. If you go to most of the test papers that have been published, there are abundances for most elements already. And that, you know, there's we have most bright host stars have been surveyed with HARPS or Espresso or, you know, all the other spectrographs, and we have, call it, high-quality abundances already from all of those. So I think what's interesting about this is, of course, that they have this data-driven approach where they're using machine learning to get the abundances, which is not something that is normally done. Mm-hmm. And they're using it in a uniform way for the same, yeah. you know, the sample with the same spectrograph. And, you know, I mean, some of the previous surveys are uniform as well. And we've talked about some of those before. Mm-hmm. So, for example when we talked about a paper by Vardan Adebikin about the trend in terms of rocky exoplanets, mm-hmm. what their core size is compared to the stellar abundances. You know, yep. That's a big survey of known uh, exoplanet hosts, and we're seeing structure in that yeah. star abundance versus planet characteristic regime. So I think, and we're definitely going to see that with James Webb. I think that's going to be really interesting because we can take it to the atmospheric side. You know, We'll have the density, we'll have the what's in the atmosphere, and we'll have the, what's in the star, and we can compare all three and see what trends we find and I think that's going to be really interesting yeah oh definitely yeah this is this isn't necessarily a new thing we're learning in terms of information about these elements and yeah like you said it's in every discovery paper should have this because they they should have high resolution spectrum well, that, yeah exactly to look at the stars I think the the key here is very much the uniformity of it and actually the trying to be unbiased in the nature of what you're looking at allows you to look into some of those trends a little bit more. So this research note that I just talked about is very, very biased. It has just selected the 25 planets that will be looked at with JWST and gone, okay, what are their stars like? Here's the data for you. But, you know, the the larger sample, I think, is going to contain interesting information. And I think that we're going to start having to question these things a hell of a lot more now with the data quality that we're getting and the extensive wavelength range that is offered by JWST that means that for these exoplanets in particular, we can now measure the C to O ratio accurately. We can likely measure the MGSI ratio, the magnesium to silicon ratio. And the importance of knowing those stellar values is going to be really, really key. So Yes, keep keep using high resolution spectra and getting more information on the stars as always. Exocast. Right, I think that's enough from me. I think it's over to Hugh. What have we got this month? So I usually talk about detection, and this time I'm talking about atmospheres. So. So this is a, a little bit we of change places. for me. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a paper from Michael Zhang about the detection of atmospheric escape from four young mini Neptunes. So I think it's worth setting up about you know what we know about exoplanet populations is that there are these super Earths which are tend to be terrestrial you know less than 1.8 Earth radii, likely rocky, and then there are mini Neptunes around two to three Earth radii which are likely you know have some sort of volatiles on them, and then there's a valley between them called the Radius Valley. 
And so there are a few ideas trying to explain this radius valley. So maybe some planets have enough hydrogen and helium to hold on to the atmosphere that stay on the many Neptune side. And then some planets don't start with much gas and stay on the terrestrial side. And then there's a transition region where if you're in the valley, then you effectively lose all of your atmosphere and, and transition into the super Earth region, uh, which depopulates that valley. But the, I mean, the debate is really about what the formation of this is. Maybe it's caused by photoevaporation. So that's to say the particles and light from the star are evaporating away the atmosphere. Maybe it's caused by core powered mass loss, which is to say the heat from the internal planet formation is enough to blow out the atmosphere and lose the atmosphere that way. Or maybe these are just water-rich cores. And so there is no hydrogen helium. They're just very low density because they're made of lower density water and not rock. So the question has always been, how do we test that? How do we test that hypothesis? Which one is going to be correct? And I think TESS has really helped in this regard because it's been able to find a lot of small planets around young stars. So more than doubled, I think, the number of planets that are younger than 500 million years and smaller than five Earth radii. So these are the kind of planets where we can actually see something about the formation and evolution of the planet you know, over time, if we take a statistical sample. So we can see the processes happening on younger planets and see what older planets look like in comparison. One way to do that is to use JWST, because uh, these will be interesting targets for JWST in, in the near future. However, as we've talked about on this show before, probably the easiest way to probe the processes going on in an exoplanetary atmosphere isn't to look at transmission uh, and the molecules in the atmosphere, it's to look for hints of gas streaming away from the atmosphere due to evaporation or core powered mass loss. And so while hydrogen can be studied directly in the UV with something like Hubble to do this, it's actually far easier to spot the helium that's streaming away from the planet. The so-called metastable helium line in the, in the near infrared is vastly easier to study from the ground and from space. And in fact, we talked to Jess Spake way back in Exocast 25 about her discovery of this process using the Hubble Space Telescope, where they actually saw the transit depth, uh, WASP-107b, jump from about 2% to 2.1%, so uh, you know a 5% increase in terms of that atmospheric line in the low-res spectral bin that they, they were using to study around the helium line. However, in the high resolution spectrographs you can do from the ground, this effect is even more pronounced. So for example, that WASP-107b line, which Baker et al. saw jump by about 5%, goes from 2% deep to nearly 9% in depth from the ground, if, you, if you're studying this in high resolution. Since that first detection four years ago, a handful of hot Jupiters have been found to have this evaporating helium uh, in this way. But now as, as TESS is bringing this haul of young small planets, we have an opportunity to test whether low mass planets as well are also gonna potentially be losing their helium and hydrogen atmospheres this way. So this is what uh, Michael Zhang and collaborators have been doing using the near-spec instrument on Keck to study four young sub-Neptunes that were found by TESS in the last few years. So these include two planets in multi-systems, so TY-560 and TY-2076, which I was actually involved in detecting or you know, helping find the true periods of using KOPS earlier this year. So th this included two planets in multi-planet systems, so TY-560 and TY-2076, and two planets which have not yet been confirmed, but which the team vetted as very likely planets, TOIs 1430 and 1683. And in all four cases, the planets orbit between three and 10 days with radii of around 2.5 Earth radii. Um, so it's far smaller than the typical hot Jupiters that have previously been searched for these helium exospheres. And in all four cases, the team found extremely deep helium transits, sometimes four times the depth of the 
just from the planet alone, suggesting that indeed these planets are losing hydrogen and helium to space and there are large exospheres around these small mini Neptunes. In three cases as well, they also found that the helium line appeared to be blue shifted, i.e. being blown away from the planet towards us during transit, which is quite interesting. So what does that actually mean for the evaporation that's happening? Well, I mean, first off, it implies that these planets do have hydrogen helium envelopes, which rules out them being at least, you know, fully uh, water-rich ocean worlds. However, without knowledge of the exact atmospheres on the planet, for example, that metallicity, so how much uh, metals are in the, the, the atmosphere compared to hydrogen helium, it's difficult to say exactly what evaporation rate this corresponds to. Using kind of order of magnitude calculations, Zhang and colleagues calculated that this mass loss rate was high enough to evaporate the entire atmosphere within a couple of you know, hundred mega year on the average case and potentially even even quicker. So in terms of whether this corresponds better to core powered mass loss or photo evaporation, it's actually the shape of those lines which gives some insight into this. Because in the terms of the core powered mass loss, uh, we would expect the internal heat would be evenly heating the atmosphere and pushing it away, causing a more symmetrical transit. And in the case of the photoevaporation, this is in this case where we'd expect to see the stellar wind, this hydrogen helium being blown away from the planet and being caught in the stellar wind, basically. And this is what we see. So we see this blue shift, and it does seem to suggest that rather than this core-powered mass loss, it is photoevaporation that is the dominant process here. However, you have to include things like magnetic fields, potentially also giving you some asymmetry. And so there are some ways where you could keep a, you know, keep this result consistent with this core-powered mass loss if you were to include extra features in, in the model, which they didn't go into. But I think this is a great example of how test planets are already enabling us to characterize these smaller planets, even before James Webb gets us into their, you know, their atmosphere, atmospheric constitutions. And studying these young mini-Neptunes is a real key way into answering these open questions about the populations of exoplanets we have, especially at lower radius. And so it's definitely interesting to see that photoevaporation remains this, this most likely way to form the radius valley. And I think that's what most people assumed when the radius valley was detected. And that's probably what most people now uh, lean to as the dominant mechanism for forming this valley. But I think this is a really cool paper. And, you know, to have vastly increased the number of small planets that have this detection uh, in terms of the helium exosphere, I think it's really remarkable that we've been able to do that in such a quick span of time. Yeah, I think that was a really fascinating result. I, I love the, the blue shift, you know, moving towards us, getting a real feel for the, uh, you know, that envelope being kind of blown off that planet. And you do mention that it's likely the dominant process, but there is still a possibility, mm. right, that there is some core uh, accretionary heat still blowing the atmosphere off uniformly in, in some directions. It could be a contributor, not necessarily a zero sum. It's either all that or mm. th th there could still be a, a contribution from it. I just don't know how we would necessarily yeah. be able to separate those out. I guess the thing is these are runaway processes, right? So something gets it into this runaway st stage and mm. it would be one process or the other. I doubt it's going to be both of them providing equal kind of weight. Yeah, no, so I, I wonder if they're different stages. It's initiated by the internal heat and then that allows the star to start the stripping process. So it, I think one of the key things is getting information from these planets at very different stages of that perhaps evolution and trying to understand how we can disentangle them because, you know, all of these processes are complex and where they overlap is really where the key understanding comes from. 
So I, I really love the, the helium escaping measurements for this because they really are very nice probes of it. The fact that it's a triplet and the fact that you can make such clean measurements from the ground for a number of different kinds of planets is a really nice way of doing that. So I love the evolution this has gone through. I mean, these aren't the cleanest measurements, I have to say. Like are they the, not? Tra the transit light curves are somewhat ropey. Mm. Uh, I mean, when you're on the ground and you've got a a five-hour like transit duration or something, then actually getting that into the span of a night and not having these air mass trends and the problems you get from the atmosphere is, is, is in the way. Yeah, so some of the stuff that's going to be really helpful for the escaping atmospheres is some of these small stat sats that, that are yes. being kind of developed. And, and one of those is, you know, we talked about in the previous episode where we were interviewing Dr. Nicole Cologne about Pandora, which is a small sat that is being currently developed to try and understand the stars more and the connection of the stars to the planet. So I think it's these kinds of investigations that allow for those much longer and much more dedicated searches that will be key in disentangling the effect that these kinds of interactions between the star and the, and the planet actually have. Because we've talked about, you know, when I was talking about the paper, I was talking about how the star's composition may have influenced the planet at some point in its history whilst it was forming. But this is a direct current this is happening now influence. So there is loads of different kind of time aspects to how much a star is going to influence a planet. And I think this is one of the key ones that we can actually make contemporaneous measurements of, which is really, really cool. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Of course, it'd be difficult to do high resolution in space. That's the only yes. thing. So you, you ha kind of have to do that from the ground. But I agree that, um, that in terms of mo monitoring these stars is, is perfect from, from the space. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I might call time on another very interesting and diverse news episode there. Thanks to my co-hosts for their interesting summaries of their papers. And don't forget to look out for our other episode this month, where we chat with NASA scientist Dr. Nicole Colon about JWST, about various other exoplanet missions, about her career. It was a really interesting chat, so do, do check out that episode. Let us know what you think about the show through Twitter at exo underscore cast or on our website exocast.org where you can find all of our previous shows. You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Exocast. Each coffee is just $4 and every donation over 15 bucks will get you a shout out on the show. A big thank you to Tobias Andropolis for the seven coffees he donated last month. You can also get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, mugs, and more over at exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, KOPS Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at Bristol in the UK. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Burbeck University of London in the UK. Our podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and made possible through your donations. Find out more at exocast.org. Exocast. I have exoplanets.